Herod Antipas is that Herod that John the Baptist criticized for marrying his sister, marrying his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. And of course, John was arrested and eventually beheaded by this Antipas, Herod Antipas. And so hoping, the Pharisees rather, were hoping that Jesus would, would say, no, it's not lawful for anybody to merit, to divorce rather for any reason, thus hoping that Jesus would suffer the same fate as John. Well, that didn't happen, obviously. Uh, Jesus answered a question much more profound than that and did affirm, of course, the the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage and, and those things that we'll see. There was also a contemporary religious controversy, so political controversy with, with Herod, but also this ongoing political, uh, excuse me, religious con- controversy about especially divorce, and it had to do with two schools of rabbinic thought back in that first century time. One was, you may have heard these words or these names before, Hillel and Shammai, Rabbi Hillel, if you think about liberal, uh, excuse me, Hillel has the L in it, three L's in fact, so he's very liberal in his application understanding of of uh, the law, the, the Mosaic law. Then you have Shammai, who's more conservative, more more um, uh, restrictive on his application of it, uh, quoting from the Mishnah as, it's, as it records the, the teachings of these two schools. The school of Shammai say a man may not divorce his wife unless he's found unchastity in her, for it is written because he has found in her uh, and underscore or emphasize the word indecency in anything. Now, what they're doing is con- commenting upon a teaching in Deuteronomy 24. I'd love to get into that, but it's, it's legislation regarding if a man sends away his wife and, and she gets married to somebody else, that wife cannot come back and marry the first husband. If that man finds any indecency or any, any unseemly thing or any uncleanness and, and the Shammai, uh, house, house of Shammai say, uh, if, if there's any indecency, in, uh, or, or if there's indecency, the basis of that. Whereas the school of Hillel say, he may divorce, divorce her, the man, even if she spoiled a dish for him because it's written because he hath found in her indecency in anything, any kind of uh, conflict. So you see how Shammai is saying it's only a certain uh, unchastity or uncleanness in her, indecency. And Hillel says, no, it's any reason. If he spoils a dish, you know, burns the bacon. Well, no, they wouldn't burn the bacon. But uh, if you had, if you had any kind of a disappointment in your in your wife, you send her away. Just do that. And Jesus says, "No, have you not read? Don't you know your scriptures? You know Deuteronomy twenty four, one through three, but you don't know the from the beginning God's mandate for marriage." So whereas the Pharisees were trying to discredit Jesus religiously in the eyes of the people, making him conflict with Shammai or Hillel, very popular, very popular uh, teachers of the day, or to destroy him at the hands of Herod, uh, that was their intention. And Jesus you know, withheld or withstood any of those uh, kind of antipathies against him. These Pharisees were concerned about obeying the law, rightly so, and yet their application, their intention is uh, so wrongheaded that Jesus corrects their controversial discussions about divorce and remarriage by saying, no, from the beginning, we can see God's intention here. So we see in verses 4 and four, 5 and 6 are two things, especially as we consider verse 6, which says what God has joined together. A lot of times we think, oh, marriage is this ontological or, or existence kind of a thing. It's something that is just mystical. And there, there's a, a sense in which it is, right? Ephesians 5 uh, does say this mystery is great. I'm just talking about Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let husbands love your wives and so forth. 
Here we see that God has joined together specifically in two ways. And we can see it here in verse 4. Uh, he made, have you not read that he who created them, he made them. So there's that first element. How has God joined them together? Because he made male and female. And then secondly, it says in verse 5, he said. So in other words, the way that God joins together in marriage is both by his creation design and by his creation decree. By design and decree, he has joined together husband and wife in marriage. So in verse 4, Jesus, as he says, as, as he asks many times, have you not read, which to these people, I mean, these are the teachers of the, of the law. They obviously have read, they have memorized a lot of the, a lot of the scripture. And Jesus says, you guys don't even know. You have no clue. You, 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 you think about these things, you talk about them, you teach them, but you don't understand anything of what you've read. Have you not read that he, so he brings us out of there, out of Herod and out of the, the rabbinic schools, God, God who created them, uh, from the beginning made them male and female. Now he's quoting here in verse 4, he's quoting Genesis 1 and verse 27, that God made male and female in his image, that these are the expressions of humanity. By his design, he has put these, these uh, humans together. And now they're the only ones at, up to this point, male and female, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and, of course, Genesis 2. It is spoken of more carefully. But to have male and female, notice it says uh, he made them, he made the man and the woman, as Genesis 2 goes on to describe, there's just one of each. And it is interesting. One person uh, said, uh, said it this way. If God had supremely, supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. If God had intended polygamous life, that is a marriage between multiple people at any given time, God would have created one man and several women. Actually, polygamy is one man with multiple wives. Polyandry is one woman with multiple husbands. Kind of interesting um, variation there. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made two men or two women. But that God intended monogamous, that is one man, one woman in marriage, heterosexual life was shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. Another person adds, God did not make more than more women than men so as to provide for divorce or other options there. Now we have Adam and Eve, and then we have this declaration in uh, Genesis 2 and verse 24. So we see that marriage is between one man and one woman by God's design, by God's creative uh, uh, presentation of this. We see the, the corresponding command back in Genesis 1 is to be fruitful and multiply. Male and female, marriage, the context of marriage, provides for procreation or having children, and therefore that dominion. How, do, how is Adam and Eve, how are Adam and Eve supposed to express their dominion over all things without fulfilling that commandment to be fruitful, to have and bear children? We see then that in the, in the context of marriage is the proper sphere of uh, having children, raising children, children, or excuse me, marriage as it is defined here, as it's presented in Genesis 1 and verse 27, male and female. Now, that's not to say that somehow, and, and we get into this thinking sometimes, that we have a husband and a wife, and that husband and wife become a family only if and when they have children. Well, thankfully, that's not the case. A husband and wife is a family, a family brought together. That doesn't mean that, okay, after the children are all gone and raised, then we cease to be a family. No, the husband and wife, that is the, the in terms of our limited time frame, a permanent relationship. 
doesn't go into heaven, you know, eternity, because you remember the whole question that Jesus had about the woman who married the seven brothers and whose wife will she be and all that kind of thing. But in our temporal existence, we have this expectation that it's one man, one woman for life in the context of children, which... Remember Psalm 127 that talks about like arrows in the hand of a warrior, like the children of one's youth. Arrows are not intended to keep in your in in reserve or keep at home. It's not like a, a bulwark or a gate or something. No, arrows are intended to be sent out. And that's what the intention is. We want our children to, to mature and to be uh, responsible members of society, all that kind of good thing. So children are a temporary relationship that we have in our in our family life and we want them to go out and then of course lord willing to take their own spouses and raise their own children and and the 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 life cycle continues in that regard all that to say is a marriage without children is not an incomplete family it is an intact family as well we also see that marriage is a customary intention which is to say it's a normal experience for humanity. It's not something that's reserved for just Jews or Christians. This is in creation. This is before the fall. This is before Abraham. This is before Moses. This is applies to everybody. It's a universal um, authority or authori- authoritative pattern for all humanity, not just those who are, you know, God word or, or uh, intended for God. Now, it is sad that we see many aberrations, many uh, uh, rebellions against God's intended will, even. Early on in Genesis, we see uh, the the issues of polygamy. We see the issues of uh, multiple times. We see the issues of fornication, adultery, all all manner of, of aberrations or or defilements of God's intended design. We cannot. We do not have the authority to change God's definition or God's uh, design in marriage. He has uh, precluded us, or he's, he's prevented us from redefining it from neglecting it and say, oh, marriage is so old-fashioned, we don't need that anymore. Uh, he wants us to affirm this intimate companionship uh, in, according to God's design. We have many aberrations, as I've said, many distinctions or, or rebellions against God's good thing, pedophilia, homosexuality, uh, even a violent assault, polygamy, polyandry, all these things. And we need to affirm, even in this context of Matthew 19, it's either marriage or celibacy. I'm not going to get into that idea. Celibacy, not just being single, but being intentionally single for for a permanent or a long time. And Jesus gives three reasons why that can be at the end of this uh, these verses in Matthew 19. It is very interesting to see in this context, again, God has has brought together husband and wife, male and female, in marriage by his design, making them male and female, but also by his decree, his his revelatory statement, which really, to come out of that conversation just a moment and look at the fact that we have natural revelation, which is to say creation. We can see, we can study creation, we can see all kinds of uh, imprint, the imprint of God, the Father, the righteous, omnipotent all-knowing God over all aspects of creation, but we also have a special revelation. Natural revelation is good. Psalm 19, we can read all 1 through 6, all talks about the natural revelation. The sun goes out as a bridegroom adorned and all this wonderful thing. But then we need verse 7 of, of 
Psalm 19, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord are good and right and pure and enlightening the eyes. All the, We need both natural revelation and the special revelation. That's why we see it right here. He made, that's natural, that's what we can see in terms of creation, but also he spoke. He didn't just let us come to our own conclusions. He spoke and said, okay, if you didn't get the picture from that natural uh, example, let me tell you what this is about. So in verse 5, uh, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2 and verse 24. This is the context of, of uh, God presenting Eve, the woman, to Adam, and of course taking the rib from, from his side and fashioning it into the, um, into the beautiful Eve that, that she was. And we see an introductory statement here, which we, which we could see throughout Scripture, for this reason... For this reason, I'm explaining God. This is God the Father speaking. By the way, if you read Genesis 2.23, it's Adam speaking. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. So this is God defining what's going on here. It's not just Adam who has the authority to name all the all the creatures, all the all the beasts, animals, but he also gives name to his wife. By the way, if you ever ask the question uh, or or hear the statement, you know, humans are just animals, right? We're just mammals. No. Mammals are mammals. Animals are animals. Humans are entirely different. Animals, mammals even, are not made in God's image. Humans alone, male and female, are in God's image. We're not just higher form animals. We are humans made in God's image. We're different. Can you see some expressions? In fact, to, to make conclusions upon or about marriage based upon animal behavior. Well, some animals mate for life. Some animals do not. Some animals, even in the course of their lives, change from having male characteristics to female if the need need presents itself. And so, okay, so we can, that, that informs our human experience then too, because, you know, we, no, it doesn't. Animals are animals. Humans are humans made in God's image under his authority. And so we want to affirm what he says for this reason. This is why this is, this is going to happen. And what Jesus is, is quoting here, again, saying, haven't you read this? Don't you know? This is essential elementary stuff. This is read at the beginning of the book. You ought to know this pretty well. They did not affirm a, a fundamental aspect or characteristic of marriage, and that is this is a covenant. This is a covenantal relationship. It's not so much a contract. Contracts can come and go, but a covenant is a, is a, is a long-standing, I mean, it's a permanent kind of a situation. This is something that ought to withstand the, the pressures, the whims of, of uh, emotional life or the strife or, or that thing. She burnt my toast again for the second time today, and she's out of here. I'm going to give her a writ of divorce just like Moses commanded, and she's gone. I'll find somebody who can cook better or clean house better or can respect me or make a decent cup of coffee. Any particular reason why men would would present for a divorce no that's not valid that is not that is not uh, what god intends now of course this is in the context of divorce right so is there ever a divorce that's this reasonable yes in fact jesus says it here in verse uh, 7 and 8 and and the and which maybe we'll get into it at some point. But here he's affirming and correcting us. Let's go back to God's original design and decree and let's let's move from there then. We see that this 
inaugurates or initiates a covenant between one man and one woman. A covenant is something to be kept. It is marked or to be marked by faithfulness, loving kindness. It is to be presented with loyalty, in fact, intense loyalty, both to the the vow that we're making, the covenant, but also the person. We are committed to fulfill uh, the promises that we make, but also as we fulfill or, or as as we have promised to a specific person, we're about marriage to this person, not just about the idea of marriage in general, and it doesn't matter which partner I have. I'm committed to the idea of marriage. I just am on my fifth one because that's just how it happens. No, we want to affirm this is a lifelong commitment until death do us part. That statement has come into our vernacular. But covenant keeping is throughout Scripture. We see these, these uh, agreements that God has made, sometimes unconditional unconditional promises to Abraham, to David, uh, to Moses, to Noah even. And we see conditional covenants. If you do this, then I'll do this. And if we don't, then uh, it'll it'll all fall apart. Faithfulness is what is required in terms of upholding or affirming that covenant. And there is, if there is faithfulness to be required, especially in a conditional covenant, then unfaithfulness violating lack of loyalty to that covenant, to the promise, and also to the person would be a reason or grounds for a termination of that covenant, which is in the marriage context, divorce. And does that allow the, the, the possibility of remarriage? Well, we'll have to talk about that another time. Jesus, again, corrects us, brings us back to the beginning. Marriage is a moral or covenantal union, again, between one woman, one man. We see that repeated throughout scripture. There are a few examples where it is talked about a covenant. Uh, This is a, uh, for example, Proverbs 2 and verse 17 warns against the adulteress who leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. We see that. And there's one example where God refers to marriage in terms of a covenant. Proverbs 2 and verse 17. Also Malachi 2 and verse 14, which you can look at uh, separately. So faithfulness is required to that covenant loyalty, devotion to that promise, and to that person. We see in this context, back in Matthew 19 and verse 5, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. We see the inauguration or the initiation or the beginning of this covenant in that not just a private exchange of vows. We hear maybe sometimes, well, well you know, I married my my beloved Oh, really? Where was the ceremony? Oh, it was a private thing. Just just her and me. We did it. We were married. Wait a minute. Have you left your, your father and mother? It Was it a public presentation? I mean, leaving a father and mother is not just something that happens, uh, you know, impromptu on a whim. It is like like uh, changing your Instagram profile name or something. It, it is something that is defin- definitive. It is something that is obvious. It is something that is uh, publicly um, presented. And... This covenant is entered into and in a specific and uh, profound way here. Exchanging of the vows, exchanging of this statement or intention to be covenantally, uh, uh, to become covenantal companions one to the other. We see that the husband and wife must maintain this faithfulness to the covenant. Again, it would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice if just all of our marriage were just like this? Just like the relationship of Christ and the church? Just marked by righteousness and purity and devotion and sensitivity and kindness and listening to each other and just quietly serving one another. Wouldn't that be nice? 
We don't see that. We see sin. All oh, Do you see sin? Do you see sin in your family, your life, or family's marriages closer to you, close to you? We see the problem. We see, and we want to affirm, this is what God's design is. Now, oh, good grief. We see all kinds of rebellions against it, distractions against it, violations of God's plan. In general, and this is what we aspire to, we want to maintain this covenant. We want to affirm it. We want to maintain the union in a loyal kind of love. Loyalty, faithfulness is what is required here. Not just to start the relationship, oh, we love each other, and we started, and then uh, it's kind of like that guy who, who said to his wife at the wedding day, you know, or, or years later, actually, said, I told you I loved you then, and if it changed, I'll let you know. Wait a minute. No, you should you should tell your, your spouse you love them, you show them you love them constantly. Uh, we need that reaffirmation of the wedding vows, not just on a 50th, you know, uh, 50th anniversary remarriage or marriage celebration or whatever it would be called, but daily uh, preferring, loving, laying down our lives, even as Christ loved us and, and laid down our li- his life for us. Certainly, some can, covenants are conditional. We can see that in Scripture. But in this regard, we see how this leave-taking, this cleaving, establishes a, a covenant um, commitment and devotion to that person. We can see that the durability of this covenant or the long, the, the establishment of it, Jesus says, notice Jesus says here in verse uh, 6, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He says, let no man. That is a moral imperative. That's a command. Don't y'all be separating this. Don't seek to separate this. What God has joined together, both by his design and decree, generally speaking, but also as it is personally experienced through one man and one woman, don't seek to separate that. Don't seek to get out of it. Notice he did not say, what God has joined together, no man can separate. It's not like it's an impossibility because we have sin in the world. We have sin, and these these call all, cause all kinds of problems. But he says, let no man. This is a, a requirement upon us to affirm, not just to endure marriage and look forward to the, the resurrection when we'll have no spouse, but to appreciate, value, cherish one another uh, until, until uh, Christ comes or, or calls us home. He gives us that command, let no man separate what God has joined together. The way that the husband and the wife enter into this relationship is through leaving and cleaving. Leaving, or here it says, be joined to his wife. Leaving his father and mother. What is interesting is this transfer of loyalty, a transfer even of identity. Leaving a father and mother. Used to be the son would find his identity with his parents. As, you know, I'm the son of so-and-so, or I'm the, 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 the son of... Uh, or in, the, in this family, or even the home address. My home is where my parents live, and, and all these things. But there is a leave-taking that happens. Now, we often think, oh, that, so they need to move out and move away, maybe move across country. Not necessarily. Maybe that would be easy. We, we often think that, that uh, we would prefer this more simplistic answer to this. Leave-taking is much more than just changing your address. It is changing how you view, view yourself. What, where are your, where is your ultimate loyalty? Where is your ultimate identity and purpose? And, and where do you find your meaning in life? Used to be, as a young man grows up, it is in the context of his family and specifically with his parents. But here we see this change. He's going to leave his father and mother. It includes both parents because, uh, it sometimes 
you know, the, the apron spring, apron strings that tie uh, a son to his mama or the, um, the tool belt, maybe that, that provides uh, contact, be- contact between, uh, a man and his father. That changes. If that relationship changes, which was the most intimate relationship of that young man growing up throughout his whole life, relationship with his parents, if that changes, to leave his father and mother, then any other relationship changes. Oh, my best friend or my maid over here, you know, maid in a, in a Aussie British kind of a sense, uh, a best friend, uh, that changes. We, we, you're not my best friend anymore. My wife, my spouse is where I, I spend my time. My attention is devoted. Doesn't mean we can't be friends. Doesn't mean I hate you now or we're never going to see you again or, or now to leave my parents means I need to hate them and, and disregard them and have no, no plan to relate to them and we're gone. You know, thank you for raising me, but now I'm out on my own and I'm going to, you know, no, that's not what, what he's saying here. It is a radical change in loyalty from the parent uh, to the spouse. It is, uh, a, a radical uh, change. It is something that alters uh, authority. It's not that the son, the, the young man, needs to go to his father and, and mother and ask permission to do this, that, or, you know, I think we should buy this vehicle or get this insurance company. You may ask your parents for advice. It's, that's kind of a, a good, wise thing to do. But in terms of the authority to make the decision and in terms of who, whom do you now need to please, it's not your parents anymore. It's your spouse. What can you do to love and listen to that spouse? It's, again, it's not just a matter of changing address. Do you remember in the patriarchal experience, whenever a son took a wife, where did he live? Well, you added a little lean-to on the side of the father's tent, and you just were there. Well, so that, that precludes or, or says, no, it's not just a matter of location or geographic setting. It is a matter of the heart, a matter of intention. And, and I, who, do you, who do you think of yourself? Whom do you think of yourself as anymore? We, we can see that this, um, well, one guy said it this way, Dr. Mack said, living too close to parents at the beginning of marriage may t- make it more difficult to leave, but it's possible to leave your father and mother and still live next door. Conversely, it's possible to live a thousand miles away from your parents and not leave them. So it's not just physical separation that we're talking about. It doesn't mean we can abandon or disrespect our parents. We'll talk about that in relation to this command in Colossians 3 about children uh, obeying your parents and, and honoring and respecting your parents in the, in the Deuteronomy, of course, the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. How does that relate? I've taken a wife. I'm out of the parents' home now. What does that look like? How do we? How ought we to do it? There is a change in dependence. To leave father and mother, I'm not dependent upon them anymore. I'm an independent person. Can't claim them on your taxes, right? You you claim you are not being able to be claimed on anybody's whatever. And you are a new unit, a new social unit, husband and wife, and Mister and Mrs. It's always fun when you, when you can say, I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so, and, so, and uh, this uh, profound change. Wow, this is this something just happened here. We all are witnesses to it. This is amazing. This is an expression of love and, and of loyalty, a companionship based on covenant, which we pray and hope that this will persevere to the end. Leaving father and mother, uh, just in summary, is a change of headship, responsibility, dependence, guidance, help, companionship, affection, and purpose. It's a good thing. It is exactly what God intends. Oh, to have young men who would be willing to go out and take that risk of 
proposing to a young lady and then to be married to her and even what that affect how that affects the family that he grew up in and and again not to introduce estrangement or hatred or animosity but to have a, a change a distinction we want our children to grow up and to be mature and to be uh, able to conduct their lives before god based on their own choices and their behavior here, the second aspect of this inauguration, or how does this marriage come to be, is by joining to or cleaving. The word here, uh, repeated so often in Scripture, is uh, what we could talk about, um, oh, as Jesus says, join together. That's a little bit different uh, statement, but different word. But it's that idea of a joining. It is the idea of uh, an adhering one to another, even uh, as gluing uh, one thing to another. It is an association, a very intimate association, as we see with this uh, statement, the two should become one flesh. But it is based on loyalty. It's based on this change of identity. It is a very similar situation. In fact, this word, be joined to, husband joined to his wife, is also used to describe how believers relate to God. Believers are clinging to God. They are cleaved uh, to God. They are uh, drawing near to him, serving him, trusting him, following him, loving him, obeying him. We do that before God. And we have this opportunity as we cleave to one another. This is a new, intimate relationship, contrary or different to other relationships we'll have, friends and co-workers and neighbors and that kind of thing. A husband and wife is a special unit, a special relationship, again, based on this mutual loyalty and faithfulness, based on this covenant relationship that we have. We see that marriage is this idea of leaving and cleaving, and the result of it here at the end of verse 5 is the two, the two, by the way, just to affirm that, male and female, the two should become one flesh. Marriage is a unification of a man and a woman. It is a uh, bringing into intimacy, unity, two formerly discrete individuals. You know, this person over, over here, this person's over here, which really affirms the fact, and we want, there's so much relating to marriage, courtship, for example, dating, how does this pertain to it? But until you are married, you're two in discrete individuals. Do you know, the, the sad statistic is that husband, or not even husband, a man and a woman who live together before marriage, probably is going to end in separation, divorce. People who do not uh, have that expression of loyalty, of change of identity and, and meaning and purpose in their marriage are more likely to separate. Why? Because they were, they were never, whereas they, were, they, they loved each other at one point, otherwise why would they get married? But then they fell out of love. If you can fall into it, you can fall back out of it. Wait a minute. That's not how love is supposed to be. This is a covenantal companionship. This is a statement of loyalty, of identity, of change. I changed my most intimate relationships growing up. I'm with you now. And then we say, no, this is something that's just transitory, uh, just just uh, like two water molecules that are adhered to each other for a moment. But then, you know, just free association. No. Marriage is between one man, one woman. It results in this one flesh relationship. Now, one flesh uh, has a specific reference to a, a sexual identity and union between husband and wife, and even more specifically, the, the procreation, bearing children, okay? Uh, we, we have children who are part man, flesh, you know, genetic code from the, from the father, genetic code from the mama, creating a new little life unit. Wow, a little baby that has come into, into living. We see that uh, this is the result of that covenant 
statement. This is a result. This, the sexual intimacy is a result of the, of the promise we make to each other. It does not establish the marriage. In other words, just because you have sexual intimacy with somebody it doesn't make you married. It's not your spouse. It's not your wife, not your husband. You need to have that leave-taking and that cleaving. You need to have a public pronouncement or announcement of this of your intentions here. We celebrate that intimacy, that unity between husband and wife. We celebrate that one flesh aspect. But it's not just about uh, the sexual intimacy. It's about relational unity. You are now one flesh. You are Mr. and Mrs., you are husband and wife. We have a shared identity. This is now the, the so-and-so household, the Chadwick household, or the whomever it is household. You are together in that regard. Remember how Adam said it. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This, he, he's affirming the, the identity, the relational identity they have. We see how the family uh, proceeds out of this, this covenant. We can see even larger than that, not just sexual intimacy, not just relational unity, but a comprehensive everything. Does that mean you should share, share checking accounts, credit card accounts? Yes. Have the same cell phone? Maybe that gets confused, confusing or inconvenient. Maybe each one has his own cell phone, her own, his or her own cell phone. But what can you do to affirm the unity in your marriage, your, your shared practices? You know, she has her friends, I have my friends, we do, I do my thing on Thursday nights, she does her things on Friday nights. You know, that can be helpful, but what is that, is that good in the context of your marriage? Is that good where it, it affirms the unity that you have? When you, when you have a problem, is it the wife's problem or is it our problem? Is when she has an idea or he has an idea, is it his idea? You know, he did this and I didn't agree with it. And do we affirm this unity? Do we have a total buy-in to one another? Are we comprehensively unified with each one's successes, failures, sufferings, sicknesses, uh, you know, richer for poor, sickness and health, all those kinds of things. Becoming one flesh it starts at the wedding day, the, the marriage ceremony, but it has to be built on, it has to be committed to, it has to be something that we work at because we would tend toward I'm for me. And, you know, the, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs kind of thing. But I, I'm for me. And that spouse, you know, why does, why, why does Paul say in Colossians 3, don't husbands become embittered against your spouse, your wife? Do you know Adam became embittered against his spouse back in Genesis 3? The woman God you gave me, she, wait a minute. No, that's not how you relate to your spouse. You do not discourage or, or, or dismiss her or or the, vice versa, the, the wife to her husband. You affirm that unity. You continually strive to become one flesh. It's very similar to what we read about in, the, in terms of the unity in the church. Ephesians 4 says, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have unity based on the Spirit, unity in Christ, but it's something we have to work at. Being diligent to maintain that, work at that thing. Uh, uh, check out when there are conflicts and disagreements and so forth. Work to establish even more so that unity of husband and wife. Jesus says the two should become one flesh. And then he adds this statement. Having quoted Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he says they're no longer two. They're not just, they can't just do what they want to do in their own life. You know, I have this life plan and this, not my person, my, you know, my spouse fit in my life plan back in those days, but I've changed. He's changed. We're going to go our separate ways. They're no longer two. You, you don't have that liberty anymore. You have made a promise to that person. You've made a promise, a vow, a covenantal uh, statement, and you are one flesh. You affirm that. Again, are there reasons why people don't do that? Yes, but it comes back to sin. It comes back to um, 
whether both parties are sinning. Uh, I mean, the question is, oh, really, that person over there was sinning and I'm just as pure as the wind-driven snow, never did anything wrong. I mean, we can't say that. We can never say, I'm innocent in this matter. We always, we, we are sinning and we sin against one another. Was, was that sin the one that broke our marriage? Well, what about the other sins that we've committed over 20 years, 30 years, 10 years, two months? Are there enough sins that, okay, now we can't work together anymore? The goal is that we would have marriages that last for for as long as God has us on this planet, that we would affirm that one flesh relationship. God has joined us together. You're no longer two. What therefore God has joined together, again, through his design, through his decree, what God has joined together, he is active in these things. He's active in not just the marriages of believers, Christians, any marriage is according to God's design. It's not something that we can redefine and say, well, marriage in our 21st century experience in you know North America or United States of America, you know, we define marriage as as uh, you know six years, seven years ago, we we changed the definition to allow a same-sex marriage, but it was only based on two people. When is the court case or the law going to be passed that says marriage, you know, quote unquote, is any kind of uh, relationship? I mean, it will almost come, become like, I'm going steady with this person. I'm dating this person. Marriage has become so watered down, uh, redefined or dismissed. God's design and definition of marriage such, such that it's irrelevant to many people. So many people are not getting married at all and just living together or or remaining uh, uh, un, you know, unmarried and so forth. God has joined these these marriages together. God is the one who's active in these things. God has defined this relationship, and we cannot separate what God has joined together. We cannot redefine it. We ought to, on the converse, not just be uh, defensive but offensive in our marriages, offensive in a good way, that is to protect and honor our marriage, to speak well of marriage. Like Hebrews 13.4 says, the marriage bed is to be held in honor and to speak well of our spouses, not to, to take pot shots. You know, my wife, you know, takes 14 years to get ready for a 15-minute engagement. No, that's that's rude. That is not praiseworthy uh, statement about your your spouse or or speaking derogatorily about your husband or, or uh, you know, Sharing intimate details with other people that, that no, that's that's something between you and your husband. Now, if you need help, you can ask discreetly other people for counsel and and uh, and help. But but keep that in honor your spouse, honor that covenant companionship. You don't share that relationship with anybody else. You don't share that with your parents anymore. You don't share that with your children. Uh, you're finding your identity now in your children. No, it's your spouse. You're you're oriented to that person until God. Uh, brings that marriage to an end. And of course, always re- remembering that Christ does not leave his church. What is interesting, if you read in the Old Testament, the marriage, or excuse me, the relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel, is often described as a marriage. And therefore, the sins that Israel committed are often defined as adulteries. And we can even see, I think it's Jeremiah 3, where God says, because of your adultery, I'm sending you away. I have given you, in this context of Matthew 19, I have given you a writ of divorcement. I have given you a bill sending you away. But even, I mean, almost in the same breath, God says, but come back to me. Return to me. God is all, God will separate because of sin, but he always says, come back, reconcile, repent, and let's, let's affirm this relationship. That is, that should be our goal to, the opposite here. Let no man separate. Let everyone who's married affirm and honor this marriage. Let each one aspire to this thing. As scripture says, not because it's, it's, uh, 
false. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. This is a good situation. Marriage is desirable. Is it easy? No. It is probably the the most singularly singular sanctifying influence in my life to be married, to not be one person just doing my own thing, but to be in covenantal companionship with one person for life. Sanctifying, making me more like Christ. All I have to do is love my wife like Christ loved the church. That's all I have to do. What? Like you think that's easy? All that my wife needs to do is submit to me as Christ, as the church does to Christ. What? You think that's easy? But to strive toward it, to affirm it, to say, God, your design is good. Your decree is good. Marriage is good. Let's affirm it. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your wonderful gift that you have given us each other in a husband and wife situation. We are grateful for how we reflect the relationship of Christ in the church, even the relationship of God, the almighty Yahweh with Israel, and yet such sin and distractions and disagreement and so forth that, that mar and, and cause trouble in these relationships. Please help us to affirm Jesus' words to not just not separate these marriages, but to affirm them and to grow them and to, and to encourage our children even into marriage and not say, well, I don't want a marriage like my parents, but to see you are the example, you are the model, your relationship, Christ, with the church is what we should be striving toward. We pray for our children and grandchildren even as they come into meritable, marriageable ages. We pray that you would uh, make them both the spouse that would be uh, pleasing to you and to their, their intended or their beloved, but also to find the husband or the wife that would be a partner, just as you made Eve, a, a helper suitable to Adam. We pray for those marriages to be inaugurated and to be celebrated. We pray for our young people to value and to desire marriage as not just a, a social custom or, or a, a convenience for tax purposes or anything like that, but as a means of honoring you and of growing and of loving one person for life and how that grows us and challenges us, makes us more like Christ. We thank you for your word. Please help us to remain steadfast in your word, uh, in your design, your decree, but also please help our marriages to honor you and to grow. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.